Hello and welcome to the latest episode of It Stinks, the Critic Podcast. Today we're going over Season 1, Episode 10, Dr. J. And uh, joining me to go over this episode is a writer, artist, and cultural critic who can regularly be seen uh, in the pages uh, or the digital pages of Jacobin and the editor of Locust Review. It's Alexander Billet. Alex, Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, uh, c- considering everything. Uh, how are you doing, man? Uh, you know, I'm I'm hanging in there. You know, yeah. I um, honestly, this podcast takes up a decent amount of my time, so it's it's almost like having a job. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's kind of amazing how, how, uh, uh, I remember thinking for years and years, you know, if I were just unemployed and on unemployment, I would have all the time I need to work on my writing. And now I'm walking around the apartment completely unemployed and mm. saying, Oh, well, yeah, th- this actually really sucks. <laughs> I kind of miss <laughs> being exploited sometimes. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, I, I have no idea what to do with myself. I'm a, I'm a complete loose ends and I know I'm far from alone in that respect during this, these circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, this, this is probably going to uh, come up at some point during the episode or during, yeah, during while we're recording this, but yeah, I basically know you through, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America. We're, we're mm-hmm. both members of the LA chapter. Um, I unfortunately have not been very involved with it for a while. I, I've just gotten too busy with other things, but I'm still very much, you know, supportive of, of everything they're doing. And as we're recording this, it is uh, May 1st, International Workers' Day. Indeed. Yeah, you, you were just telling me about uh, something you were doing uh, today. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, I've been pretty out of the loop too, uh, over the past couple of months, just because it's like, what does it mean to be part of a socialist organization during a time of quarantine? I mean, you know, and, and unpacking that a little bit, it's like this pandemic has completely exposed so much that's completely inequitable about capitalism, right? You know, like mm-hmm. from the from the the lack of any decent health care in the United States through everyone getting laid off and having no clue what they're gonna do, just like the 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 feeble uh state of unemployment insurance in the United States. Um so on and so forth. And so it's just, I think DSA generally nationally, I know has had to sort of wrap its head around this. Uh, but the other thing is like, as socialists are, our sense of power comes from being able to be physically together. You know, like when you're on a picket line or you're at a demonstration, you need masses of people. This is one of the defining features of socialism. So all of a sudden we have this pandemic coming up this is saying, no, everyone needs to be separate, stay in your homes, stay six feet away from each other, wear masks, all that type of stuff. And so what does that mean for a socialist group? You know, it's, it's been really weird. Like for me, I've had to wrap my head around this. And I know DSALA also has had to do that, like put a lot of, you know, try to figure out, you know, doing meetings on Zoom and things like that. How do you do protests nowadays? Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that, I mean, the, the car protest seems to be becoming a really common thing right now. And it's 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 really great. And of course, it, it, it kind of, the, the, there's a drawback to that, a downside, which is that if you don't have a car, you can't really participate. Mm. But we're in LA, everyone has a car, right? right. Uh, I, well, I mean, plenty of people don't, but you know, it's, it's such a car heavy city that actually car protests become kind of strangely effective. 
Um, so yeah, today there was a demonstration, a car protest in front of Eric Garcetti's house. Uh, probably better stated to say it was on his block because we literally just drove around his block mm. in the mid Wilshire area um, with signs and honking and, you know, saying that it's kind of criminal that uh, people still had to pay rent during this. So it was, it was demanding a rent freeze uh, during for the duration of the pandemic, really at, at the very least until um, the stay in place or the shelter in place yeah. ordinance is, is lifted. Yeah, that's awesome that you did that. Yeah, like I remember um, like earlier this year, I was thinking like, oh man, I haven't, you know, been involved in any DSA activities or anything like that. What can I do? And I was thinking like, uh, oh yeah, well, May 1st, there's always a march on May 1st. I can uh, participate in that. Uh, Because I actually did participate in the march, uh, I want to say maybe 2018, a couple years ago. And that was- Yeah, 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 right, yeah. uh, That was a lot of fun doing that. I kind of looked forward to- getting to do that again, but <laughs> oh, well. Um, yeah, it, it, it's difficult for folks to plug themselves in right now just because of all the reasons I mentioned earlier. Um, and it's just, it's a weird irony. Yeah, right at the time when I think people need to be mobilizing and working together as much as they can, the, the most fundamental obstacles are placed in front of that. So we just got to be creative, honestly, and try to figure out how to how to do it next. Cause I, I, I do agree with all the commentators who were saying after this pandemic is over, nothing's really going to go back to, I mean, you know, like people will, the pandemic will end, but I don't think mm. what we go back to will be anything we really recognize as normal. Uh, you know, so we're, 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 we're going to have some, some interesting things to try to figure out. Yeah. It's uh, going to be yeah. really interesting to see how the world changes or you know stays changed uh from this whole pandemic experience after like quarantine ends and we can all go outside again like Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully people are at least like more cognizant of like how important a lot of uh blue collar workers are like a lot of like you know our the the people that bag our groceries and deliver our food and, and stuff like that Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, what, one of the, the main uh, sort of events today that's going on on May 1st is, uh, you know, workers at Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods, uh, Trader Joe's, Target. Um, and I think there's a few other chains that aren't coming to me right now are all, uh, you know, there, there's strikes in, at locations and all of those companies across the, the country. Um, and it, it's, it feels a little, there, there have been union drives and strikes at I think all of the these companies at one time or another, but coordinating them at a time like this, when, as you said, it's becoming so obvious how much we rely on that labor, um, Mm. that feels significant and important. And is it enough? I mean, you know, no, I mean, the struggle is going to continue after this, but there's a, a sense of if that kind of if if that type of solidarity and that type of feeling and recognition of power can keep growing through all of this, then I think we we aren't going to be completely fucked right. <laughs> by, yeah. by the end of this of this pandemic. I mean, that's it's probably the the best you can say for right now. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of you know rebelling against our corporate masters, uh, <laughs> the episode we're looking at today is kind of centers around the giant corporate master that we have in the critic. Uh, of course I'm talking about, uh, Duke Phillips. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> so, uh, so 
Just to give the uh, synopsis of this episode here. Uh, while at the Cannes Film Festival, Jay comes to the rescue when Duke is diagnosed with a terminal illness. Yep. So, <laughs> so yeah, uh, the, yeah, the whole thing kind of is kind of a broad parody of the movie Lorenzo's Oil, mm-hmm. um, which I vaguely remember from the 90s. Uh, like it's. Is it Susan Sarandon and Nick Nolte? Nick Nolte, right? yeah, yeah. And I, I also vaguely remember it. I remember I watched it all the way through in the 90s, mm. but I was way too young to really remember other anything other than just the broad strokes. Lorenzo, the eight-year-old kid, has this awful terminal illness. Can't even remember what it is, but yeah, they basically, yeah. the parents, some, despite neither of them having a medical background, somehow discover some sort of miracle treatment to make sure that he stays alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I just remember there's lots of scenes, just these really harrowing scenes of, of the boy, like something about his, his affliction means he, he can't like swallow correctly. So he like chokes a lot and there's all these scenes of him like, choking and fighting for breath and like almost seizing and it, it's really oh, harrowing god. yeah i don't remember that part <laughs> oh god that sounds um, awful well luckily we don't get that in this episode <laughs> no um, no we, yeah. we we just get like a a, a weird megalomaniacal billionaire who still somehow holds on to his old hayseed kentucky roots yeah yeah uh, who who is the the pinnacle of uh of physical fitness throughout the whole the yeah. whole series, uh, somehow degenerating. And th- the interesting thing is, I don't know if it's just because they've made Duke such a, uh, um, throughout the whole series, you know, Duke is just like, you know, like skating on that, on that right, right at the border between reprehensible and completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so making him likable and someone that you root for in this is actually kind of, although I, it, it, now that I hear myself talk out loud, it's not so much him you're rooting for is just you're rooting for Jay because Jay has some sort of misplaced affection for Duke, uh, yeah. throughout the whole thing. It, it's, it, it's, it's pretty, um, uh, it's it, it, it's it's a pretty interesting episode in that respect because you end up rooting for someone who is as you know as I described for Duke you know he, he's just you know yeah like Jay almost I think kind of acts as Duke's conscience like he has to kind of convince Duke that like life is worth fighting for and that he shouldn't just lay down and die at at one point yeah yeah exactly he's he's kind of. Yeah, he kind of becomes Duke's Jiminy Cricket in this. Yeah. It's a <laughs> it's a cool little and it's a cool little moment because I think it does allow actually for some really great moments that kind of skewer how ridiculous Duke's whole existence is, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I mean, they go through well, I don't know. I mean, do, do we want to go through the the full episode sort of from moment one to the final um, moment to yeah. just sort of d- dissect it a little bit? I mean, there's there's a lot of great moments in it. Uh, yeah, that, are, that that's generally yeah, yeah what I like to do on this show. So right, so yeah, I heard well, I heard from other ones. I I, I, <laughs> I I heard from you know listening to the other episodes. I didn't know if that's oh cool. When you wanted to stick with this, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, like, you know, this is my first podcast. I'm okay with the <laughs> format being a little bit liquid. So, you know, sure, still, sure. still kind of figuring out that sweet spot. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so let's, uh, start at the beginning. We actually begin at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, so Jay is basically hosting his show and 
we get this the the first joke of the episode is he says he sees Holly Hunter talking to Marley Matthews. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jay Sherman coming to you live from the Cannes Film Festival. All the stars are here. There's Holly Hunter talking to Marley Matlin. Keep it down, you two. <laughs> I, of course, the joke being Marley Matlin is deaf. Yeah, and Holly Hunter played uh, a mute woman in the piano right, right before it. So there was something. It, it is one of those moments that I do think kind of, you know, I, as I'm sure, as, as I know has been mentioned several times on this show, um, you know, the critic was only on for just like a short moment, like two seasons mm-hmm. in the early to mid 90s. And there's something about a lot of the jokes, including this one, that clearly folks only of our kind of age group get or older. Like, uh, it it occurred to me while watching this, I'm like, do like, how many Zoomers know who who Marley Matlin is? (laughs) And there's something very specific Gen X about a lot of the critic that I, I know has been mentioned plenty of times on here. Um, but that's definitely one of those, one of those moments that kind of comes up. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, it definitely also plays to like people who know movies and care about movies yes. uh, to, yes. to a, kind of a, a high degree. Um, which, yeah, like, so I, the episode uh, that we did before this LAJ, the one about uh, oh. Jay, Going yeah. to Los Angeles to be a screenwriter, like, you know, like, can you believe that people in Minnesota or Wisconsin couldn't relate to that? Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they even take a dig at like Middle America hayseeds. Oh yeah, at that one point during the flight, uh, you know, when when a farmer yeah. saying, "Oh, these are all the people that do our, you know." are great movies and TV shows, award shows where award shows win awards. Yeah. <laughs> Get me my gun. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I mean, yeah, they take like this dig at uh, middle America, but it's also saying that like, that that's also one of the, the sort of tricky things about the critic. They never take a side. They also completely admit that yes, Hollywood is a complete farce of it. It's a parody of itself. You know, it's incepted itself so many times that you don't know where the reality ends or begins or if there's any left in there. Yeah. And and Jay is uh, definitely like the butt of the joke much more often than than he isn't. So. Right. I mean, that's the thing. He seems to see through the all of the spectacle of Hollywood so well, but he never wins from knowing that. Yeah, yeah, it it doesn't really pay off for it. No, it never does. Yes, film is nothing but cynical cash grabs nowadays, at least in the mainstream. But what are you going to do about it? And and yes, you as a film critic have all of the weaponry uh, that enables you to dissect that and dissemble it and show, expose to people just how much their, their emotional selves are being used against them. Does it ever work? <laughs> well, <laughs> Never. Not no. once. Because everyone's so complicit in it already, you know? And yeah. they feel like they're, they gain something from it. And I, that's some, that's the interesting thing about the Cannes Film Festival. I, I remember seeing the, the sequences in Cannes uh, during this, this, this episode. And um, 
you know, like a lot of lefties who are also into art and film, uh, I love Jean-Luc Godard. And back in back in the '60s, during the 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 uprising in France in 1968, um, he he held a press conference where he basically said to the Cannes Film Festival, "None of what we do here matters right now." Mm. You know, <laughs> just saying that this is stupid. This is nothing but a bunch of puff and spectacle. And yeah. it doesn't really, you know, the real interesting consequential shit is being done by the students and workers out on the streets throwing rocks at cops. And well, uh, jokes on us, can is <laughs> still going years later. Godard is still making films, but yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's still at it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but, but that, that period, like, that was when he made La Chinois, right? Yeah, La Chinois. He had just made, I think, Tout Va Bien came a couple years later. Um, and it's like th- th- this this great sort of um, notion of, of, of filmmaking that I think we lost for a certain amount of time, a few decades, or at least just got obscured up until maybe Sorry to Bother You came out. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, th- th- this idea of using film against itself that shows it's the the artifice of film and how that artifice is kind of complicit with what's going on. Now, Jay Sherman, you know, is not a Marxist. <laughs> you <No>. know, <laughs> he's not. But he's someone who loves like that sort of the sort of like simplistic beauty that a someone like Godard would employ in film to sort of turn it against itself. Um, and that kind of, uh, 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 now what, what is that? I, I guess that using some of that to kind of frame the way in which the joke is always on Jay is interesting because you can, so, in some ways you can, it sort of explains how we got to the moment that created the critic in some ways, the create the critic, the show, um, mm. uh, you know, like h- how this sort of, you know, the decline of the 60s and 70s sort of put us in that place where nothing really, it's the end of history, all of that type of stuff, convincing us that nothing really matters anymore. And therefore, the more you can explain something, the more shut out of it you're going to be, the more shut out from participation in society you're going to be. Um, Now, what is that? Is there some sort of, does that mean there's some sort of hidden symbolism in the scene where he accidentally gets drunk with Marty? Uh, (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I mean, who, who, who is whiny Jacques? Who's inside the, (laughs) who's inside the costume of the wine bottle? Whiny Jacques is here and he needs (laughs) to sit down. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There's... There's something, I mean, I, 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 I'm never one of those people who wants to disassemble or um, deconstruct things too much, but there is also kind of like, how do you get to the the joyful, ni- almost nihilistic cynicism of, of, uh, of the critic? Well, you know, th- there's a few things, maybe there's a few things that are undeliberately hidden in Jay Sherman's stature as a critic that kind of explain it, you know, like the, he finds himself constantly swimming in this morass of, of cynical cash grab stupidity. Constantly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the central conceit of the show is that like Jay is a critic who, you know, loves film and he loves like, 
like he appreciates film as as an art form. Yeah, but he's yeah. stuck reviewing like you know sequels and uh, remakes and you know the the worst that that Hollywood produces. Of course, of course, yeah, absolutely. And it's just like I mean, it, it's interesting that there were people in Hollywood making this at the time. You know, mm, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> Al Jean and Mike Reese. You know, they they were already veterans by that point and they were so, sort of they were very self-aware <laughs> to, to do something yeah. like this i mean you see it throughout the whole the whole series i think and they're not even afraid to like make jokes at the expense of the network that their show is on like no uh it, no. i mean it happens in both seasons they make fun of abc and they make fun of fox yeah stay tuned to fox where I, I remember some of the outros when I was first watching The Critic, when it was still on before it had been canceled during the second season when it was on Fox and some of the bumps in between, you know, when oh. they would go to commercial and he would, you just hear John Lovitz's voice say, stay tuned to Fox where we can say boobies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and clearly something in my 12 year old brain thought that was so hilarious <laughs> and subversive <laughs> that, yeah that i mean we definitely like you appreciate it on a certain level you know when you're a child you're like yeah he said boobies <laughs> exactly uh, but then you don't understand until you're older that like oh he's making fun of people who think it's funny that he said the word boobies exactly yeah. yes peak postmodernism. <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> uh yeah yeah so uh, there's also something interesting like in that that scene with uh uh jay and marty getting drunk where you have the 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 waiter there saying the tourists have ruined con and then he flashes back to when things were simpler when i was a boy the people were friendly oh, and the beach was beautiful Monsieur Hitler, my kite won't fly you need a tail use my armband <laughs> oh, and then yeah i guess it, it we it kind of reveals that the waiter is like a, a neo-nazi i guess yeah yeah he, yeah kind of yeah 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 he, he like at the end of his little fantasy flashback he goes Yavol. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's this sense of and he, i i think there is something in the critic generally as a, as a series using uh jay's confused Jewish identity as a kind of fractured mirror through which to view mm. mainstream, uh, you know, well, the mainstream, like this sort of, you know, in the 1990s, the idea of Nazis coming back was perfectly laughable. Right. You know, uh. like <laughs> now you laugh at it because you're like, oh shit, y'all are some fucking prophets here. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, like in the 90s, like, neo-nazis existed but they Absolutely. would they were they were like the most mainstream they would get was they would be like the the punching bag on the jerry springer show or something yeah yeah exactly exactly i, I went to a few neo-nazi demonstration or uh anti-neo-nazi demonstrations back in the glad i caught that fuck Oof. jesus <laughs> uh, <laughs> went to a few counter demonstrations against like you know the you know some tiny little Aryan brotherhood type organ, uh, you know, neo-Nazi group back in the, you know, to counter, to counter protest them. And it would normally be back in the nineties. It would just be like, you know, three scrawny little pipsqueaks who are pretty much LARPing being in the SS. Yeah. 
and we would outnumber them like a, a hundred to one every time. Sure. Uh, you would almost <laughs> feel sorry for them in a certain degree. I, uh, it ain't like that anymore, unfortunately. No, because those were the people who went from like zero to Nazi. They didn't have that uh, that like U-turn from like being like extremely online uh, yeah. going into Nazism. Yeah, exactly. They, they, it wasn't a process for them. It was just sort of they saw... I don't know. They watched Triumph of the Will in history class or something like that and said, oh, that looks cool. Yeah. Like <laughs> they, didn't, uh, they didn't have to go through that stage of seeing uh, women on the internet talk about video games. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a weird 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the future now. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, well. So anyway, yeah. So yeah, we, we we go from we go from Hitler on the beach yep. to to whiny Jacques, uh, yeah. Um, to I guess sort of the main kind of. Well, yeah. So they go from their their uh, wine lunch, which is just hilarious that they both get absolutely blasted off of a single glass of wine that they share. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so they go from there basically. So then uh, we're back at Jay's hotel. Well, just briefly before Duke calls him up to his hotel room, which is this incredibly huge palatial mm-hmm. suite. I ordered white tigers. Oh, my God. Was was the critic uh, predicting Tiger King? <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Lord. I sincerely hope it was. <laughs> but no, well, I if mean, you're gonna there's go definitely modernism on it. Then, yeah, of course it did. Everything predicted Tiger King. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, there's definitely something else we're going to get to just a bit in this episode that feels like they were predicting something. But yeah. So basically, Duke wants Jay to introduce him at this presentation he's giving uh, where Duke introduces this thing he calls Phillips vision <laughs> where he uh, basically is going to rewrite the ending to sad movies. Mm-hmm. So since, you know, since Duke Phillips is basically, you know, a parody of uh, Ted Turner, Ted Turner did actually start this campaign in the eighties to colorize old films. Oh God. I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is sort of taking it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. If you're gonna color, if you're gonna colorize the great classics, like it's interesting. Like they use in this episode, you know, the first episode you see Philip's vision applied to is Casablanca. There she goes, Rick, the love of your life, Louis. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rick, I changed my mind. I'm coming back to you, and I'm here too. And Casablanca honestly doesn't work if it's not in black and white. And I I, I am not oh, a yeah. traditionalist <laughs> when it comes to film, but there really is something about that that just like about that story that feels so much more noirish. I, I, I guess I don't know. Maybe the lazy way to say it is it doesn't come across as a true Bogart film unless it's in black oh, and white. Oh sure, yeah. You know? uh, uh, yeah, and like. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't want to sound like an elitist or anything either, but like whenever 
someone says like they hate watching black and white movies, I just get so annoyed. Yeah, I feel the same way when people say I don't watch anything with subtitles. Oh, well, yeah. That, I mean, so you're depriving yourself of probably the majority of film made in history? Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you realize the Americans are not the only ones who make films, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a shades of, um, you know, ethnocentrism to that. Absolutely. But yeah, but that's not, like, Philip's vision is not what I was referring to when I said it predicted the future. That's actually what we get to next where he says... Like he's basically going to like use old actors and like repurpose their images. What would the stars say about the way you're exploiting their images? Why don't we ask them? Ah, I hereby release Duke Phillips, see? To use my face and voice in any way he sees fit for his marvelous new invention, Phillips Vision, see? Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, God, it, it predicts that that's pretty much every Grammys now, isn't it? Fuck. Oh, not just yeah. the the well, Grammys, anyway, yeah. but like they're God. they're literally resurrecting dead actors in movies now. Like Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Carrie Carrie Fisher in uh uh well oh, in God. both Rogue One and in episode nine. Yeah, yeah. And um I forget like what the if they revealed the name or anything, but basically they're gonna bring back James Dean for a movie. Oh god, I hadn't heard about this. What what I Sorry, okay, hor- horrify me more. Tell me more. Okay, Tell me more. Um, I'm going to have to take a brief sidebar because I'm going to have to Google this now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but fuck, that's just, oh God, that's terrible. God. Uh, okay, so this is from uh, the independent.co.uk. James, James Dean to be brought back to life in new Vietnam War movie using CGI. Then the sub subheadline, Actor died in 1955. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, oh, we are man. doomed. We are doomed as a civilization. <laughs> I, I'm just picturing that they're going to remake, like, Rebel Without a Cause, where he's like, I'm going to follow the rules. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, th- that is the thing. Like, it, in, in some ways, Philip's vision does kind of... Uh, one of the things I do think it kind of predicts is sort of the way in which even some of the greatest subversive works of art can be sort of sucked back into the system, mm-hmm. you know, uh, co-opted again, uh, you know, so something like Rebel Without a Cause, which is, you know, has a lot of problems, but also basically was sort of like this scream against what what the, how stultifying the establishment had become. Yeah. Uh, is now used to, you know, j- prop up some terrible things, you know? Oh, uh, Finding Jack is the name of the film with the uh, CGI James Dean. Oh, God. Just going to put that out there. So, who, who did, do we, is there a release date on this just so I know what let's day see. to definitely stay indoors? Like, let's see. We'll see. What's the date? Oh, this, so this article is old. This article is from November of last year. Oh, shit. Oh, wait. Is expected to be released November 11th, 2020. Which, which is Veterans Day. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh. Yeah, here's a subtext. <laughs> hey, veterans, all of you are fictional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're nothing but a celluloid ghost now. <laughs> hey, veterans, don't worry if you die. We can just bring back you as a, as a CGI ghost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, fucking hell, Jesus Christ. I mean, yeah, it really isn't all that different from... Uh, 
Spartacus as Dukes of Hazard. Spartacus, we rig the chariot of the Centurion. And let's rock and roll! Nobody gets away from Centurion Buford C. Augustus! I love you, Spartacus. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Fuck. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Sorry, um, I, I was trying to very ungracefully get yes. us back to back <laughs> yeah. on, so, on track. Um, oh, so yeah. So that is the next thing we see, the the updated Spartacus, because uh, Duke said he doesn't care for all that Stanley Kubrick mumbo Nuts. jumbo oh, or whatever God. he says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> though, yeah. though I have to say, I actually like the version of Spartacus we have in this episode. I think it's hilarious. The oh God. Yeah. With, with Kirk Douglas up on the cross <laughs> and he, God. Maurice LaMarche's Kirk Douglas is uh, awesome. Yeah. Seeing, seeing Kirk Douglas hanging off a cross Screaming, <laughs> then let's rock and roll. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just that is one of those moments that like it is like quintessential critic. Yeah. That that like it was probably one of those moments that me as again like a 12-year-old just had me falling in love with the show and <laughs> falling off the couch laughing. Oh yeah. <laughs> like even though I had definitely never seen Spartacus, definitely did not know like who Kirk Douglas or Tony oh, yeah. Curtis were. No. Just yeah, just the pure surface level like yeah, humor of it. Is exactly. Enough. Yeah, <laughs> taking a biblical epic, which we had seen, we at least got what the tone was that supposed to be of yeah. that was supposed to be. And to see that turn into the Dukes of Hazard, which also I don't think I had seen a single episode of at the age of twelve. Oh wait, was uh, it Dukes like, of Hazard or Smokey and the Bandit? It could have been either. I mean, like because you have the 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 Centurion trying right. to chase after him. He gets pulled into the mud. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and he's clearly based off like a Southern sheriff kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it, it could be either. It might have been Smokey. It might. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was. That, that's like, the I first place my it. mind meant, went, but yeah, it could be either. They both yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> One of the two. Yeah. <laughs> so God. that kind of puts Jay over the edge. He objects to the whole Phillips vision thing. And uh, you simply cannot do this. I can do anything I want. If I want Citizen Kane's last word to be swing, then that's what it's going to be. I'm a god, I tell you, a god! <gasps> Rosebud. I mean, swing. So then he he's uh, put in an ambulance. The ambulance uh, takes him to a plane. The plane flies up and then flies to the building next door. About 30 feet away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For some reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, that's where we learn uh, the uh, doctor tells Duke he has four years to live. Yep. And um, you're telling me that this guy is going to live longer than me? Yes, but he will have years of chronic back and joint pain until the day he chokes on a ham sandwich in his bathtub. Oh, oh, can the sandwich be olive loaf? I suppose so. Yes. He has a uh, an ailment that is only seen when first cousins intermarry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Duke, God bless him. God bless his heart, as they say in the as they say in the South, bless his heart. Oh, he yeah. says, hmm, well, first time for everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, 
Oh, yeah, so he tries to show off, like, how fit he is. He, like, basically lifts up Jay and, like, does, like, push-ups door. with him. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm pretty sure they went to a commercial after that in the original. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that takes us into Act 2, where now we are, uh, we're flying home uh, from uh, Cannes. And, oh, so Duke is, like, kind of coming to grips with this situation. I think... You know, Jay says, well, hey, you know, they'll they'll name a uh, disease after you. I already have a disease named after me. My real name is Duke Scabies. I'm a descendant of Colonel Beauregard Scabies. And then that's, yeah. They, they do they that do parody the, uh, shot from Gone with the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> with all of them, <laughs> all the soldiers scratching. <laughs> and then you hear one of them say, could have been worse. We could have been stationed under Colonel Krabs. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, back in Duke's office, uh, there's already a newspaper headline about it. Word travels fast uh, on this show yeah. uh, that um, Duke's stock is soaring because he's dying. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> Which almost feels like something that might happen in our world if something happened to like Bezos or Elon Musk or something. I have a feeling it's going to happen to Elon Musk if no one else. He's already such a friggin' liability to. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, Jesus. Like every time he tweets, like I actually just saw this today. Like every time Elon Musk tweets, you can see people in the replies saying like, shut up. You just cost me $10,000. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, again, these are the people who are supposed to be like our best and brightest uh, people yeah. leading us into a bright future. Like, I, uh, I mean, it really just exposes like what a lie Atlas Shrugged is, right? Oh, absolutely. No one would miss a goddamn thing if Elon Musk went on strike or Jeff no. Bezos. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> just fuck all of them. Jesus. Yeah. 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 So the next thing that happens is Duke says he's not. He's not a country bumpkin the way everyone sees him. But then we oh, get the, I guess, I mean, no other way to say it, the like the country redneck who kind of yeah. sings the uh, the buffet offerings. Wait a minute. This means they think I'm some kind of country bumpkin. What's for lunch? Side meat and turnip greens, boiled potatoes and pinto beans, possum stew and shoe fly pie, pickled pig's feet fresh from the sty. Yum, yum. So then I forget how we... We, we get to this, but Duke basically shows off another example of Philip's vision with uh, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 Jay sits down to eat lunch with him. And yeah, Duke essentially turns one flew over the cuckoo's nest into a laundry detergent commercial. Oh, yeah. Where uh, even oh, Nurse Ratched uses it on her whites and her and colors. And her colors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And, oh, Jesus. The thought of... Nurse Ratched, like, being a, a sex object, like, whoa. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. I, I, you know, that that movie, problematic though it is, I guess, by our standards, is such a masterpiece. Oh, um, yeah. No, I love that, that just, movie. Yeah, it, it's a remarkable film. Uh, and again, sort of goes back to, like, that 1960s and 70s sensibility of using film to relay absolute rebellion. Uh, you know, like it is based on the Ken Kesey novel. Kesey was a, you know, 
part of the you know oh, yeah. original acid tests back in the 60s yeah one of the uh was he like the leader of the the merry pranksters or he, he was part of them i can't i can't okay. recall if he was the leader but yeah yeah and it's just like and, and again it comes full circle what 25 <laughs> years later by the time this episode comes out and it's turned into you know a a detergent commercial sort of the yeah. full the, <laughs> yeah. the full spectrum domination of all art by commerce. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, like, uh, in the song, uh, big yellow taxi, they, they paved over paradise to put up a parking uh, lot. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's the best. And now I think that, that I'm pretty sure that that song is used in, in, uh, uh, car commercials now oh so, yeah probably yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can rebel against it you can commodify it because you know? like hey it has a, a car in the title that's all yeah, you need yeah we'll use that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> shit so yeah like I, I think that discuss jay he goes outside and says he's gonna retch and then like duke what does he like tell him you know like i need you to stick around you're the only person who won't like you know try to cheer me up yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, he basically convinces Jay to stick around. And so Jay like says Duke should make the most of the time he has left, which for Duke means he wants to do something he's always wanted to do, which is <laughs> tell off his <laughs> boss. Tell off his boss. <laughs> well, Mr. Sherman, you think you're the puppet master and I'm just dancing on your strings? Well, snip, snip. You're nothing but a scurvy little spider spinning your webs. Take that Benet Brith Award. Man, that felt great. That boss that he doesn't have. Yeah. So he makes Jay. Jay, you are my boss now. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Then, yeah, we get the scene of him telling off Jay, his pretend boss, which is great. Take that Benet Brith Award. I, re- <laughs> <laughs> I remember that line and probably will until the day I die. <laughs> Where he takes Jay's probably priceless glass trophy from the Benet Brith Foundation <laughs> and just smashes it. <laughs> oh my God. Would that uh, be a hate crime? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would be and probably should be, yeah. <laughs> especially coming from Duke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so then, oh yeah. So then that's now we get to the, the Scrabble scene, oh, which is God. great. I think, I believe we're at Jay's apartment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, Duke is playing a uh, Scrabble with Jay and Marty. And, uh, I got, this kind of reminded me of the, the Simpsons episode where Bart tries to make up a new word. Where's the buck? That's not a word. Get Webster on the phone. Noah, how you doing? It's Duke. How much would it cost to make Quizabuck a word? I don't know what it means. Uh, how about a big problem? Great. How about that other word I invented? Dukelicious. No one's using it. What a Duketastrophe. Uh, I love it. Yeah, because it's hilarious, but also completely within Duke's character. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It, it, it's just, it, it's exactly the kind of thing. Honestly, it's the kind of thing you could see Ted Turner doing back in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, in the next scene, Duke is basically dictating his will to Jay. Um, and where he, that basically, I think this is maybe the first uh, instance of the the long running gag of Duke thinking Jay is gay. Uh, is this the first? I could have swore there were some other. I mean, I, I'm not doubting you. I'm just. 
Uh, I believe so. Yeah, um, crap. I think, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the editor of the critic Wikipedia or anything, but uh, I'm going to, as far as I can tell, this is the first example of that. Oh, so this is the first of the I am not gay moments from Jay Sherman. Yeah, which happens a few times in this episode and then just kind of continues. Yeah. It's kind just of sort for of the peppered. rest of the series. Yeah, through the whole series, they just sort of pepper it in, I think, with increasing <laughs> frequency. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Where what, what does he say? He's gonna. Uh, he's gonna. Uh, oh give. yeah, he, he's gonna endow every <laughs> university with a gay studies department in yeah. Jay's name, which is, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. Every university in America, yeah. like yeah. that's uh-huh. a lot of universities. And this is back in the '90s when that kind of wasn't as uh, frequent. Actually, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, they didn't start to really hit a stride with like women's <laughs> studies and gay studies and all the all other sorts of sexuality studies until maybe the aughts. I like think. imagine what a move that would have been for Jay to just be like, Yeah, you know what? I am gay. Give me those yeah, departments yeah. of gay studies. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God. So then in the next scene, uh Duke is meeting with uh the poet Rod McEwen. Rod McEwen. Which, yeah. honestly, I had to do research to find out who that even is. Me too, um, yeah. <laughs> Front yard squirrel is stealing oranges. He crabs and chit-chats to himself, then threading through and into leaves and branches, he spies an orange three times his head size. <laughs> Silly old squirrel. Ron's going to write my musical autobiography. Why are you doing this? Duke and I have been friends ever since we met at the Cat Lovers Convention. Shut up, rhyme boy. Apparently, he was like the Thomas Kincaid of poetry. He just oh, only. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, yeah. Apparently, all of his. I mean, it, I, I don't want to shit on him too much. I've never read any of his stuff, but it kind of fits with the little poem that he reads when Jay mm. comes into his office because it's about like a squirrel finding an orange and it's just yeah. like really saccharine, oversweet type stuff. Um, but McEwen, it turns out, even though he was writing this like very, very just like sappy, schmaltzy type poetry, he was also a member of the Mattachine Society, was a lifelong advocate for gay rights. And, okay. and apparently he read his poetry like alongside people like Ginsburg and Kerouac back in New York in the 50s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I'm not quite sure how he got into, you know, just such sugary saccharine verse Mm. um but yeah there you have it you know yeah well also i guess kind of amazing that uh they tapped him to do a voice or to voice himself on this show yeah it it feels like such an out of left field uh you know reference to make yeah they're gonna be like huh can can we get rod McEwen? (laughs) (laughs) you know it's like right after they decided oh great we got gene shallot perfect excellent (laughs) yeah what about McEwen? (laughs) uh so then the next scene it's we're still in duke's office it's now nighttime Mm -hmm. uh duke is kind of feeling depressed uh jay suggests duke try religion and then maybe my favorite duke moment of the whole episode Have you ever considered going to church? Religion, huh? It's not too late, my little lamb. Well, like most members of America's cultural elite, I worship Pan, the goat god. But thanks for the thought. Like, I don't don't go in for um, conspiracy theories or anything like that, but I could totally believe that a bunch of billionaires could have a secret pedophile ring. 
Oh, it's absolutely. Like, I mean, I mean, hell, isn't that been pretty much every single news story over the past right up until the pandemic? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, Jeffrey Epstein had a sex ring that he also had Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. And Alan Dershowitz and God and knows. Matt Yeah, Matt, Matt Gray. Oh, God. Yeah, that one kind of broke my heart. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's sort of like when you get to be that rich, like no rules apply to you. So it's like, Absolutely. what can you do that's dangerous? You, you just have to go to the to bigger and bigger taboos. Well, it, it really is one of the it, it's sort of one of those moments when you start to see some logic in the conspiracy theories and like you i don't go in on them at all but you know there's a sense of how to like we already know that the rich control so many other so many parts of our lives so of course something like skull and bones oh yeah or whatever that that the the owl's lodge i think is what it's called or the the bohemian grove that's what it's called um you know of course we're going to project some really terrible, um, nefarious image onto it because honestly, they probably are where a lot of terrible deals are are thrashed out. But the, here's the thing: the rich are also boring and mundane. Oh, like, oh yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, I, I think that's one of the best things about Duke is they make him such a parody of a parody of a parody that his the that throughout this whole episode, the idea of him being mortal because it becomes its own punchline because again, they've made him so on that sort of like sinister, ridiculous kind of uh, path that they put him on that. Of course, the idea of him dying becomes just a perfect punchline, you know, Mm, it's like bringing him back down to earth in some ways through, through Sherman. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so after, after, uh, he, he says he worships Pan, the goat God, um, yeah, so Duke basically is confronting his mortality head on because the, the mm-hmm. next thing we, we see is that he's made an appointment with Dr. Krikorian, <laughs> the, I guess, you know, the, the, uh, um, uh, uh, liable free version of, uh, Dr. Dr. Kevorkian, Jack Kevorkian yeah. <laughs> who was also, you know, like a big target for parody and jokes in the 90s. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember it. I mean, I think that was when he was doing. I think, yeah, back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s is when he was probably the most controversial. Yeah. Like he was in the news a lot. He was definitely the subject of a lot of uh monologue jokes on the late night shows and stuff. Mm-hmm, lots of vitriol and and yeah, I think they sort of run with it in this where they bring in like what's what is Dr. Krikorian's death machine? It's like Oh yeah, it's like a carnival machine. It's a carnival <laughs> with light bulbs yeah. and, and like calliope music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You don't have to do this. All that's left for me now is to die with dignity and grace. On our headphones, you can listen to Stan Freeberg. 
the perfect end to the perfect life. It's like, and I love that moment before when the actual doctor is standing there saying like, hi, Mr. Phillips, I'm here to, you know, do you in. And he looks at Jay and says, oh, you'll go easy. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not Duke. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. He's like, this Adonis? Oh, we're going to need to, looks at Duke. and This like peak of physical perfection. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, Jay tries to like, tell Duke that, you know, he doesn't have to do this. And, uh, so Duke's, but Duke says, you know, he wants to die with dignity. And then that's when the nurse says, you know, they can give him headphones so he can listen to Stan Freeberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a perfect end to a perfect yeah. life. I think Duke says, yes. afterwards. <laughs> uh, which I, I have to make a, a just a, a brief sidebar here. I, I'm actually, uh, I've met and I guess I would consider myself friends with uh, Stan Freeberg's son, uh, Donovan. <laughs> no uh, shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. He is uh, uh, dating someone uh, at the Pack Theater. Oh, God, of course he is. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's But great. I mean, you know, super nice guy. He's he's awesome. Um, no, of course. And, of course. Yeah. You can't help what you're born into. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but the listeners may know him as the uh, blonde kid from the Encyclopedia Britannica commercial from the early 90s. The Wait, kid who your friend? A, Stan Friedberg's son. Yes. Donovan <laughs> Friedberg is the kid who had a report due on space. Oh, my God. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that was his claim to fame. Oh, God, holy um, crap, I do remember that ad. Remember me? I'm the kid that had a report due on space. Then I got the new Encyclopedia Britannica. He had a report due on space, and then he got the new Encyclopedia... I think I made that abundantly clear. Um, yes. Anyhow, here it is. I mean, hey, everybody knows this is the greatest encyclopedia in the world. Help me get a B plus. Why not an A? Too long. I found so much great information, I put it all in. Overkill. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, crap. <laughs> That's great. Um, God. But yeah, he, wh what is it when when uh, I think then now is I think when the the Lorenzo's oil parody comes into it, because really uh, before yes. it, it's, it's only very it's not really tied in at all. Here's where they do it. They do it quite deliberately when when Jay says, give me a month, I'll find a cure. And then Duke says, oh, like that, uh, like in that movie, Lorenzo's Oil. Yes, exactly. Wait, don't give up yet. What if we find a cure for your disease? Like in that film, Lorenzo's Oil. Isn't that the picture you called a mixture of fantasy and crap? Yes, I dubbed it Fantacrap. I dubbed it Fantacrap. <laughs> which I feel like I had forgotten about until I rewatched the episode <laughs> yesterday. I'm going to remember Fanta crap oh, nice. as a critic. <laughs> as I, I'm, uh, I, I think it may be one of my like B plot missions in life oh, to yeah. get Fanta crap nice. into the dictionary. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it occurred to me that, Oh, that means that uh, Jay and Duke are both in on the inventing new words game. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got Quizabuck, Duke Licious, Duke Tastrophe, and now yeah. Fantacrap. <laughs> um, so then the last thing that happens in this act is uh, Dr. Krikorian, who sees that now he's not going to get to kill Duke, uh, is panicking because it's the first time he'll have ever uh, not lost. Well, I think he says not lost a patient. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, actually. So they, he tries to run down Duke in the death mobile. <laughs> Which oh, is just God. amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's just like a broken down, like 
gray Cadillac that's like 15 years old, something like that. Yeah, th- this is another like one of those moments where the critic just gets very cartoony. Like th- it almost felt like a like a, a Roadrunner c- cartoon where the yeah, car yeah. just breaks down. And- well, they and right before that, they played the Batman theme song from. Oh, yes. And they hop in this broken down Cadillac that literally entirely falls apart in front of Duke while he's crossing the yeah. street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, again, sort of this great usage of the medium of the cartoon against itself, like like popping the artifice. And the, the interesting thing is actually I. You know, I mean, I don't know how much this has been brought up so far in the other episodes you've recorded, but it's like the the notion of cartoons being for adults is still somewhat not controversial, but some people still kind of roll their eyes when you say I'm watching The Simpsons or South Park or whatever. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you know, like I, I'm pretty sure my dad said that to me at some point. But anytime you put on a Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon, he would piss himself with laughter. <laughs> you know? Sure. Like, like that's always been the thing about I, I don't think there was ever a time when the writers of a cartoon weren't also thinking, how do we entertain the parents in the audience? You know, how do we make sure we don't lose them so that they're not like begrudging, dragging their kid to, you know, watch Saturday morning cartoons with them? Yeah. You know? Um, And I think that that kind of, yeah, I think that kind of moment at the crosswalk kind of, there's a, there's a little bit of that going on in there. Well, and, and it's probably impossible to make a cartoon, at least a comedic cartoon that doesn't, uh, pay homage in some form to the Looney Tunes at some point. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, they're that huge. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So after that, uh, after we see the death mobile, uh, just kind of crash and burn, (laughs) um, Jay sets off to find a cure, um, but Duke, you know, he's not really, uh, optimistic. Yeah. He ain't feeling it. You know, <laughs> he says he's tried so many medications. He now has kaleidoscope vision. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. They, they inject him with like a, like horsefly larva or something yeah. like that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And of course we have one of the many w- great Jewish moments of the critic where, um, 28 J's. Sing a little, 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 little. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Um, I, 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 love I love. Shit. I love when they let Jay express his, his Jewishness, uh, goofy as it may be. It's so lovely. I think this might be one of the reasons why I I it, it embraced a Jewish identity come uh. my thirties <laughs> and just went like, yeah, you know what, like. You know, when I look back at so much of the culture that I was imbibing in the 1990s, <laughs> of course, of course, I'm a Jew. You know? <laughs> yeah. So after that, uh, Jay finds a plant in the rainforest that he thinks might have the cure. Oh, and, God. and I don't know if this is a, a parody of uh, a, a direct movie or something, but we it's. I remember there was a movie when I was rewatching it yesterday. There was a movie called um, Medicine Man that had. OK. Yeah, it had Sean Connery and Lorraine Bracco in it. Pre pre Sopranos, uh, Lorraine Bracco, and 
it basically was about Sean Connery and Bracco were both uh, scientists or botanists, doctors of some kind out in the middle of the Brazilian rainforest living with a tribe out there trying to locate um, there was something like like Connery had actually found among some of the plants out there a um, you know a, a basically a treatment for cancer um, and uh, it, it was sort of a race of t- race against time for them to find more of it before the rainforest was literally torn down. Mm. Um, I, I, I can't vouch for the quality of it because like I, I saw it when I was, you know, 10 thereabouts. Uh, yeah. but I, you know, th- there is something to be said for, I mean, we've been saying this for decades, right? There's untold <laughs> natural miracles oh, in yeah. the rainforests. Um, and well, frankly, a, a, this is another one of those moments. It's sort of like the earlier Nazi moment in, in the critic, where you know Jay airdrops himself in, looks at this plant and says, "This is going to save Duke's life," and then he accidentally drops the flare. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and starts another rainforest yeah. fire. And again, I'm just oh god. Twenty five years later, this is both funnier and not as funny oh, at the same yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because, yeah, oh, the gosh. rainforest, yeah, is literally being burnt down now. Yeah, exactly, because of that fucking asshole, that literal fascist Bolsonaro. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I um, come to think of it, I do have vague memories of, of uh, uh, Medicine Man, and I kind of remember there being... I guess it was maybe a spinoff series, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Was that a spinoff? I want to say that was com- a completely different scenario, wasn't it? Oh, I, I, I never watched either of them, so I couldn't really say. I never watched it either, but I'm pretty sure that took place in like the Old West. Oh, hmm. So, but you're right. They were about the same time. Um, and who knows? They They might have been tapping into the same type of film slash TV watching market. Uh, for it, I don't know. There might be something to be written about. T- about because uh, the 1990s was also when we had ER, and now really the only medical show. You know, I mean, House has been off the air for a while, but what's left really in terms of medical shows like Grey's Anatomy? Grey's Anatomy, yeah, yeah, that's Grey's. That's it. Yeah, yeah, and that's been on for so long that just I don't know. I think just everyone just sort of expects it to be there. <laughs> McDreamy is now Mick woken up. The dream is over. Wait, he was asleep? I, I don't know. Like, dream? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, <laughs> guys. <laughs> I, I haven't watched a single episode of that in probably 15 years, dude. <laughs> oh, my God. Is the cast even the same? I mean, like, at this point, who? I know Catherine Heigl was off of it a long-ass time ago. Oh, but yeah. I, I mean, who, I never I, left. I like, never really watched it. So I don't know that. Nah, I, I just know my that's like my mom's favorite show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of I kind of feel like a show like Grey's Anatomy is made for moms, just moms, sure, the demographic. Sure. Yeah. You, know? Like, <laughs> you know. All right. So after uh, after that unfortunate uh, trip to the rainforest, uh, Jay. He goes to like a lab to try to buy like a few hundred test animals. Oh God! Yeah, which is a, yeah, a pretty novel approach. Um, yeah, absolutely. But like, then the, but then the you aren't going to eat them, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to eject them with terrible diseases. Yeah. Then I'm going to eat them. 
Ugh. <laughs> but also the, the scientist uses the word quizzibuck. Quizzibuck, yeah. yeah. We'd like to help you, but we're in a real quizzibuck. All of our animals are committed to testing cosmetics. Well, hello, you wascally wabbit. Dad, you gotta start dating. Which is ironic because by this point, Jay has already gone through several romantic interests. Yeah, who? So he's. So in the very first episode, he dates Valerie. I who? believe Valerie Fox is her name, the actress. Valerie, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's in the pilot. Who? The second episode is the woman who ties him up and it becomes. Oh, God, the uh, misery, misery episode. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. That, that one is. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, uh, and uh, there's another episode where he he uh, meets and has a, a date with the woman who is inside the Humphrey the Hippo costume. Oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, the, so. Humphrey. That's right. He has. Yeah, and that's right after he gets uh, into a fight with Humphrey. Yes. Oh God, all those kids yes. saying they're gonna break his nose <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because he made Humphrey sad. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yeah, and then he ends up at uh, well, yeah, Margot's de- uh, debutante ball. Uh, yes, balls Humphrey. Yeah. Oh wow. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, he actually has had a, something of a love life, which is yeah. interesting, given that Alice doesn't come into the picture until second season. Right. So yeah, first season Jay is just kind of like uh, George Costanza in in that sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Shit, wow. <laughs> <laughs> After this, we go to the cryogenic place. Yeah, Institute, yeah. Where yeah. the the sign outside says "Home of the Corpse <laughs> Home of the Corpse Sickle." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they said uh, the um, they said we could freeze your the yeah the the doctor says we could freeze your boss until we find a cure. Nurse comes in and says. Those kids are skiing down Orson Wells again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like throughout this whole series, uh, uh, they poor Orson Wells. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> they make him, especially, you know, I don't think at this point in the series they've gotten to the commercials yet. You know, the Rosebud, Rose and Peas commercials and uh, all of that. Yeah. Um, I don't think they've gotten to that. I could be wrong, but I don't think they've gotten to any of they- that. But- I want to say there was maybe one uh, Orson Welles moment we've had so far, but I, it's not the – it wasn't the commercials. It yeah, was no, else. not the commercials. But, like, God, they, they make him such a easy butt of the joke Yeah. when there's something so tragic. Like, I thought those commercials were hilarious when I was 12. Oh, yeah, You know, yeah. <laughs> when I had only a vague idea of who Orson Welles was – and it was only in my 20s that someone finally showed me on YouTube the Paul Masson uh, oh, yeah. commercials, the, the including the outtakes where he's yeah. just drunk. <laughs> like, oh, my God, this guy was like a, a fucking savant of film and theater and and also was kind of one of us, too. Like he was a fellow traveler of the Communist Party. Oh, OK. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. He definitely was like part of the Federal Theater Project, was allied. I mean, you know, Citizen Kane is so good at skewering the the emptiness of of wealth mm. and power yeah. kind of makes sense if you put it in the context of what is, is sort of you know not exactly he was a communist but he was like communist adjacent in the in the 30s back when it mattered right you know and he was just such a fucking master and so for him to him to have him end his life doing 
beef burgers commercials. I just, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, because, yeah, basically the the final part of Orson Welles' life, he his base, basically his film career had, had come to an end. And yeah, it had he tanked was, it, yeah. Yeah. He, but, but he had he, a great voice, so they, yeah. He, yeah. And he still had some name recognition, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and he still managed to make F for Fake, which is a great film. I have never seen that one, actually. I, I'm going to have to. It. I mean, I think people consider it like the first like mockumentary because it's kind of presented in the documentary format, but Orson really plays with the format a lot. And uh, a lot of it is fictional. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's great. All right. I'm going to have to see it now. I I, I probably will find it even more tragic that he died in obscurity the way he did. (laughs) God. Um, But yeah, poor Orson Welles. They really, the kids skiing (laughs) down him is just sort of, Oh, God, it's nothing compared to what they have in store for him later in the series. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, and then um, I think the, the joke that's kind of inevitable when you're at a, a cryogenics institute, <laughs> yeah. Jay, uh, Jay tips over a dead body and it shatters. And it shatters. Yes, exactly. It's it's inevitable. And you know what? There's a reason for that, because it never stops being funny. Yes. It, it's like, it's, you know, it's like slipping on a banana peel. It's like it, it, yeah. it has to happen. Utterly timeless, utterly yeah. timeless. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then, after this, we get a, a brief uh, foray to uh, Jay's parents' house. This is the mm-hmm, only, mm-hmm. the only Eleanor and Franklin we get in this episode. Oh God! Um, though Franklin is at his Franklinist. Oh, he's, he is at his best. He is feeling his oats in this little scene. <laughs> Your father is conducting an experiment of his own. Maybe you two can work together. What is the point of this experiment? I've invented the first Fishmo baby whirlamagig. It'll be bigger than the Badger Blaster. Yes. <laughs> He's constructed an insane machine that has like kids spinning around. Yeah, and, like, like whirling babies, and there's a conveyor belt with fish. <laughs> and Ugh. and Franklin's convinced it's gonna be it's gonna be the best thing. We still don't know exactly what it does. No. <laughs> <laughs> but Franklin is convinced it's gonna be the biggest thing since the Badger Blaster. <laughs> yeah. Which uh we never get to see what the Badger Blaster is, do we? No, it, it's probably better left to the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So then uh we get to uh, the next episode of Jay's show. He's been working so hard to find a cure that he now can't even stay awake on air as he is reviewing Jurassic Park 2. Revenge of the Raptors. You may have us, but you'll never get off the island. I beg to differ, for you see, the other raptors and I have constructed a crude suspension bridge to Venezuela. Once there, I shall lie low and assume odd jobs under the name Mr. Pilkington, but perhaps I've said too much. And again, you sort of are caught in this kind of the datedness of this show because it was before Jurassic Park 2 came out, before Jurassic World or any of those, you know, other expansions of the universe and i think you kind of forget actually or i think we kind of forget how 
significant Jurassic Park was when it came out. Oh, um, yeah. Like I saw it in the theaters and it was as a theater going experience. It was one of those moments when like you can genuinely talk about cinema being magical, just like completely enthralling you and blowing you away. And so the the sort of but a, a, none of the sequels measure up to that. No, I not mean, not no. at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and it's just sort of like this was the magic that probably should have stayed just in one bottle. Because if you try to parse it out, it just dilutes itself. And I think actually when you, you know, make the the intelligence of the raptors into this like literal thing where yeah. <laughs> they're able yeah. to, you know, shove a newspaper under a door. <laughs> to get the key out and unlock themselves. And they have a plan to turn their, you know, to <laughs> they have a plan to escape to Venezuela. Oh yeah. <laughs> assume odd jobs under the name, Mr. Pilkington. Like <laughs> just, all right. Yeah. I mean, this is, this gets it again, just everything we were talking about before. Like Jay is the only one who sees that all film and indeed the world has definitively jumped the shark, you know? Oh, yeah. He's the only one who's able to see it. Yeah, because really the the biggest recurring joke throughout the whole show is that they make, like, fake sequels to, to films that, well, to their mind, would never have a would sequel. Ne- yeah, exactly. Like, like, like Howard's End would never become Howard Stern's End. Like, that's Yeah, ludicrous. exactly. Um, so... <laughs> Like Jurassic, like how can you make a sequel to Jurassic Park? Like that yeah. would never work. That's an uh, like like Gene and Reese got that it is an unsequelizable film. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't need anything. It did not need that. Well, even though I guess did Michael Crichton write like to like he wrote Jurassic Park and then he wrote The Lost World, right? But I guess you know. Yes, well, I think he did. I think he did. But still, like just but filmically, yeah, are, the magic yeah. was gone. Like the, the, there was. Yeah, books correspond to a different sort of aesthetic logic than film. There yeah. was no reason to turn The Lost World into a film other than making money. And it did right. that. It, 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 as a commodity, it fulfilled, it, it met its goal, mm-hmm. yep. you know? <laughs> so, but in terms of film, no. And, and the weird thing is that we are all in on being the butt of the joke along with Jay. Like, we see how ridiculous this shit is, too. So the joke is just as much on us, but Jay's isolated in his world. So I don't know if there's something being, if there's something to learn from us, uh, from this, that like, wait, all of us identify with Jay, but we're all still isolated and completely powerless to change what Hollywood does. I don't know what we take from that. And and I I don't think necessarily the creators of the show had a clear idea of what they wanted people to take away from it either. But it's an interesting question. It's it's a very discombobulating but obsessive question to ask, too. And for me, as someone who writes about art, I find myself, I mean, answering that question is my, well, is my holy grail. Ah, The one thing (laughs) you will never find. Um, But, you know, you just sort of <laughs> it's it's what else can you do yeah i'm glad that uh, the critic could be you know relevant to your uh you know your your regular vocation 
Oh God, I will never forgive it. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forgive this show. Um, for it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so then we're at Jay's home where he's, yeah, just basically mixing random chemicals and yeah. he's got his, he did manage to get one test animal. He's got a hamster there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> and well, no, um, I don't know that life's life seems to be going pretty good for that hamster at the end of this scene. Oh, I think life is about to get much better for the hamster because Jay sneezes into his concoction. And then when he gives it to the hamster, he <laughs> basically has this Popeye moment where he, yeah, he starts, <laughs> exactly. he starts running around. He like, you know, he does cartwheels. He bends open the bars of his yes. cage <laughs> and yeah, just starts doing cartwheels back in forth while Jay has this, uh, you know, I'm a, a happy doc. Um, and then basically, you know, finds a, an excuse to say, uh, the names of all the Disney. Oh singers. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. Oh, I'm a doc, a happy sneezy doc. Oh, Ooh. I'm a sleepy, happy, sneezy dog. If I don't get to bed, I'll be a grumpy, dopey, sleepy, happy, sneezy dog. Bashful? While the real punchline of that scene is is the the, the cartwheeling hamster underneath it. Yeah. It's amazing they got both of those things going on in this scene. And yeah, it's yeah. like you're, you don't know what to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I love just the visual of the, the that hamster doing cartwheels. That was awesome. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So and then I think we go straight into um, the party celebrating uh, Duke being cured. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the serum does indeed cure Duke. Uh, the um, and then the the entertainment at this party Oh, is God. basically, well, it's a bunch of former presidents starting off with Ronald Reagan. And then we get dead. Uh, well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> dead now, I guess, alive mm. at the time of this episode. Yes. Right? Um, yeah. And then we also have Carter, thankfully still alive. alive. Yep. <laughs> uh, Gerald Ford. Dead. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, and and uh, Bill Clinton. Take it away, Jimmy. Duke, Duke. Duke, Duke is well. Well, well. He is swell. Swell, swell. Not in hell. Hell, hell. I'm glad Duke has his health so I can tax his awesome wealth. Oh, but also don't forget you have Bush Sr. in there. Oh, Who's right. also dead. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> we got him. We got yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. uh. <laughs> and of course, Bill Clinton playing sax. Yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it, it, it is interesting. Like I, I, obviously Clinton is, uh, you know, far more the butt of the jokes in other episodes, like where they, you know, they make fun of his weight, where he, he's eating mm -hmm. McDonald's and falls through the, <laughs> the floor oh, yeah. of the Oval yeah. Office and yeah. falls on socks. Um, I think in the the episode where Jay goes to war, um, there uh, or in, 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 it takes place during the Gulf War, they have that uh, that little scene where Jay meets President Bush. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, and his advisor says, film critic is one of the most reprehensible uh, <laughs> yeah. on uh, professions in the, are you sure you want to take this picture? Hey, my approval rating is 90%. How bad can it get? <laughs> and then Bush loses election. And there's that little sidebar 
um, column that says lecherous hillbilly wins election. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) I just like, again, maybe this is one of those things where you, it shows how the, the show was made 25 years ago because there's so many easier things to make fun of Clinton for nowadays, you know? Right. Like, well, like being on Epstein's plane, frankly, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's oh, Jesus. I mean, they really nailed him for, with the lecherous thing. Cause like that's mm-hmm. kind of still relevant. That's absolutely still relevant. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, it, it's, um, this kind of, I, I, yeah, it, it's interesting to see that, that sort of the way in which the show has aged. And it's and that's one of the examples where this show, you know, they is they're sometimes not afraid to really, you know, give their jokes teeth and uh, go for the the jugular, but they never really stay on that level, or they never really follow yeah. through with that. Yeah, I mean, like I you you said it before, I think in in a previous episode where you talked about Woody Allen. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're hinting in, I, I think that like second or third episode that, yeah, yeah there's a scene with, with Woody Allen and Soon Yi. And this is yeah. like, it was already an open secret that Woody Allen was kind of a perv, but, um, you know, you could argue it's before we knew the full fucking extent of it. Right. You know, and, and that's, that's fine. That is what it is, but it gets, uh, yeah, they kind of stop at just like making him goofy. You know, he he, he like he dances off into a manhole, something like that. After yeah, after the 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 joke where he says, "Oh, I thought this was the prom," and it's like they don't really take a stand. They just sort of like it's a very, in some ways, I think it kind of anticipates the the South Park ethos, you know, where everything is just worthy of being pointed at and laughed at but in terms of actually what we think thinking something having an opinion taking a stand oh yeah you mean the the south park ethos of always like taking the the middle ground on everything. yeah 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 it's a, you stand on the fence so that you can just piss on everyone who's not on the fence with you it's like have like taking a side like makes you like uh, worthy of mockery like the fact that you're not apathetic like that's the thing that's that we're mocking you for exactly exactly and it's real like uh, y- you see it actually at the, the the closing sequence of that uh this episode which i i guess we'll get to um so uh, i guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah we're we're almost there uh so um so yeah so in return for basically saving his life uh duke you know, says Jay can ask for whatever he wants. We get another, <laughs> we get another example. Anything? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not gay. Um, <laughs> no, it's all right. A deal's a deal. You can go hog wild. <clears throat> um, but no, so Jay, you know, wishes for Philip's vision to be destroyed. Yes, yes. The one big victory of this episode, honestly. Yeah. yeah. I don't want Rhett coming back to Scarlet. I don't want the guy from my left foot to become a punter for the Bears. I want Deborah Winger, Allie McGraw, and Bambi's mother to die. All right, Jay, you got it. Because you didn't just save me. You saved everyone with Duke Phillips' disease. And then, um, so yeah, so Duke says he'll do it. Uh, 
un- unfortunately did not happen in our world, but it happened in Critic <laughs> world. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, Duke Duke says, you know, that Jay is now a hero to everyone who has his same disease. I'm Lars Schonberg, and I just clubbed my 1,000th baby seal thanks to Jay's oil. Hi, I'm a drunken tanker captain. I wouldn't be able to spill my oil without Jay's oil. Your streets will run red with blood thanks to Jay's oil. Sherman Uber Alice. We love you, Jay. We love you, man. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. And this is like, this is where the parody of uh, Lorenzo's oil is the most, um, uh, the most pronounced. Because I remember at the end of that film, they do exactly what they do at the uh, end of this episode, which is they, they have this like whole mosaic of footage of kids who had um, the disease that Lorenzo's oil cured. They go through this whole mosaic and saying like, I'm alive because of Lorenzo's oil, <laughs> except what they do yeah. this time around is yeah, we it's, get, uh, uh, it's a KKK member saying it yep. <laughs> and a drunken oil tanker driver. Uh, a um, guy who clubs baby seals. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure like someone who's clearly meant to be Gaddafi. Yeah. Uh, Mark Gaddafi, which is not the first time he's shown up in the critic, which is interesting. Uh, right. Yeah. He's also, his son goes to the, the UN school. The UN school. <laughs> Hi, I'm Omar is daddy. <laughs> and, um, and then, yeah, there's like, and then, like a uh, uh, clearly a neo-Nazi skinhead saying Sherman Uberalis, <laughs> <laughs> which is so ironic considering Jay is Jewish. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and th- th- that like really personifies what we were just talking about with it in this. Th- th- there was something like I've been trying to place um, why it is the, that the critic has such a cult following. Uh, and I've been thinking about it for a long time, even before uh, I was asked uh, to come on the show, uh, even before you, you, you put the podcast together, which is that, you know, it has a real, there was something about the critic that definitely anticipated the adult swim types of mm. uh, um cartoons like yeah home movies, brilliant, uh, you know, the first five seasons, shall we say, of Aqua Teen. Uh, you know, the really kind of like they tapped into something again, that sort of realization that people, adults can watch cartoons for something to be subverted to and have like, yeah, really, really incisive parody that you simply can't do with live action. Uh, nowadays, you know, it's just like, it sort of shows a difference in the format. Um, and I was trying to figure out, okay, like what it, what what is it about the show that's led it to have such a cult following? It was only on for on for two seasons, you know, twenty three episodes, and then a few of the the uh, the Simpsons crossover, and then the 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 uh, the, the online shorts. Um, what what is it that made it such like an underappreciated phenomenon for folks like of our age? Like we're we're about the same age. I'm 37. I want to say you're probably about the same. Um, yeah, I I turned 35 uh, this year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're of that same kind of like elder millennial, um, younger Gen X. We're like right on the cusp of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something about the show that just kind of like, you know, for me as like a kid, uh, you know, watching Comedy Central 
late night um, when they would show reruns of The Critic um, after it got canceled from Fox. And th- there was something you just really kind of like it, 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 obviously it was more than just funny to us. And so, I mean, it was, and it was brilliant in that respect, but you know, I'm trying to place like, like how do you, why was that? Why, why was it that it, it, it kind of stuck in our heads so much? And I'm thinking about like, you know, what, what were the nineties? It was this kind of moment when, you know, we were all told that history was over, you know, the fall, of the, the fall of the Berlin wall, capitalism's triumphant, all of that type of stuff. Um, and anyone who, and meaning was all relative, and so therefore any attempt to find meaning kind of didn't really, it was just bound to like, just, just miss you just, just swinging a baseball bat at air. And then, um, but I think also of the other art that really kind of hit with our generation, you know, like grunge, hip hop, all of that type of stuff. It was sort of this, this way of embracing the meaningless of it in order to find a kind of meaning and, there was something about the critic that kind of spoke at that also. It, it lambasted the meaninglessness of it, but it didn't necessarily find any other meaning at the other end. And that kind of like lack of, um, what's the best way to put it? That, that kind of uh, not taking a stand thing kind of made sense at the time, you know? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, I, I think... I always thought it was kind of symptomatic of like uh, Gen X kind of nihilism. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it was kind of like peak postmodernism in some ways. It just kind of like was like, because by our standards, we would look at this and like, what what is that final sequence telling us? In some ways, it's telling us that um, if we want universal health care, if we want de- decent health care in this country, then it means we're going to have to give health care to the bad people too. Right. Which guilty as charged <laughs> that's yeah. absolutely anyone who talks about medicare for all yes we say that too um but also there's something else opened up by that you have to also admit that oh wait all these people who are the naysayers about healthcare for everyone also have to admit that wait oh fine so you do admit that there are racists who want to go around and beating up anyone of color or jews or anyone else um, you know, you do have to admit that these people are out there. And back in the 1990s, actually, that was a weird thing to say, because, again, you had this kind of like end of history kind of thing. All struggle had been removed from public life. Um, but the KKK was still there. You certainly still had oil tankers running aground. Like, when yeah. was the Exxon <laughs> Valdez thing? That was that was just a few years before this episode came out, if I remember correctly. I want to say that was like 91, maybe. Yeah, 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 I think so. So it's like, there's this sense, I think, in a lot of the best culture from the 90s that, like, was sort of using the end of history to show that history was still happening. Now, that may be too pretentious an analysis to apply to a cartoon. (laughs) But but I, I think if we aren't looking for meaning in this type of stuff, then we're honestly kind of admitting that there is no meaning. You know, unless everything kind of fits together in that way, then, you know, it's like, well, what's the point of really having an opinion on any of it? You know, no, no, like I'm totally in favor of, you know, taking your entertainment seriously and uh, thinking that, yeah, it is like if we want to treat it as art, then, yeah, that means really critically examining it, which I'm I'm all in favor of. 
Um, and I, I've also like trying to th- uh, like think about like, yeah, what is it about this series that made me remember it? Like all those years later. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't know, I, I can't really get as, as deep as, as you got for me, it was just like, Oh, I remember all those great jokes and I want to hear those jokes again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, in some ways it kind of, I mean, maybe this is one of the reasons why it mattered that we all identified with Jay the most because it made it, if not cool, at least permissible to have an opinion about how um, utterly idiotic things had become yeah. by the 1990s. <laughs> yeah. you know? I guess maybe that was one of the things that made it sort of sit comfortably with, you know, the best of the best of the other culture from that time, because it was trying to kind of trying to push back against this idea that everything is meaningless because if everything is meaningless and that means even the terrible shit uh is inconsequential and i think that you know it has consequences yeah you know and we could kind of see jay as you know as the guy who's like like there's that episode where he uh he wins the pulitzer prize for basically (laughs) begging people to stop seeing schlock yeah and stop going to bad films so like if the movie sucks, don't just don't go. Yeah. Or does so, he say sucks or stinks? I, 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 it would probably make sense. Oh, he probably that. says stinks. Yeah. Uh, that'd be more on brand for him. Exa- yeah, um, exactly. But so Jay does believe that good art is worth fighting for. And so it definitely has meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And so we can maybe almost put Jay alongside people like, I don't know, Bill Hicks or people that... Uh, yeah. Kind of just argue against the phoniness of, of society. Yeah, I think so. I think there's something in that 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 very much speaks to us. And it's not to say there isn't problematic stuff in the in the critic. Like I think actually it's it's uh its portrayal of Arabs gets really, really uncomfortable. Oh yeah. And uh, and I've mentioned on this show several times their portrayal of trans people. Absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah. And it's like you know that stuff needs to be addressed and talked about, but I don't think it takes away from the, the overall incisiveness of just saying that something was happening in that sort of aftermath of the seventies and eighties where insisting that every, that nothing had a meaning meant putting yourself at ease with everything becoming crap and everything becoming, including things in your own life. Right. So it's like there's fairly trivial ways that we could talk about everything becoming crap, like art, like, um, though, arguably that has consequence, too, because if people don't have access to good art, then they don't have access to actually a very fundamental part of human existence. Right. Um, But there's far more immediate, uh, you know, uh, potentially deadly ways to talk about everything becoming crap, like the healthcare system in the United States becoming crap, you know, that, that has actual, as we are seeing right now in the most like slow motion, tragic way possible um, that has real consequence. And yes, we should have an opinion on that. We should, but we should also be able to skewer that in the most like absolute merciless way possible that people don't have access to healthcare during a pandemic is just like how how do you justify that 
Well, the only way you can really justify it is saying that history is over and nothing has any consequence. That doesn't fly <laughs> yeah. anymore. That that doesn't fly anymore. And that hasn't flown for some time. We're still dealing with the aftermath of it, but it's it, it, it doesn't have the credibility. It, do, it doesn't carry the water that it used to back in, say, the 90s. You know? Sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, um, yeah. Wow. We've been we've been going for uh quite a while here. Oh god, but, like an hour and a half. I'm sorry, um, dude. <laughs> no, no problem. But let's say we uh bring this episode to a close. Sounds good. Yeah, I feel like we pretty much went over this episode with a fine tooth comb. So <laughs> Yeah, I think um, so too. Yeah. So, uh, so Alex, uh, if people want to read more or just get more of your stuff, where can they do that? Well, uh, I appear in Jacobin fairly regularly. Uh, so you can check me out there. I'm going to be in the next, uh, two upcoming print issues that they have coming out. Uh, long story behind that. <laughs> and, um, I'm also going to be in a, a couple other publications. There's a publication called the common reader that is uh, published out of, uh, uh, Washington university in St. Louis. So I'm going to be in there coming up soon. Also salvage, which is a British publication. I'm going to have a, an article there also. Uh, you can also find me at uh, locustreview.com where I'm an editor. Uh, Locust Review is um, a, a publication dedicated to radical, weird uh, art, poetry, and fiction. So just if it, so, you know, the weirder, the better, uh, but also with sort of some, some unmistakable communism under it. So locustreview.com <laughs> is where you can find me. And finally, I also have a blog um, called uh, To Whom It May Concern, and you can find that just by going to uh, uh, To Whom It May Concern has a dash between between each um, uh, word. So to dash whom dash so on and so forth dot org. Uh, that's where I blog. So yeah, you can find me at any of those types of places. And um, yeah. I I write a lot <laughs> obsessively. Awesome. Uh, please validate me for it. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Very cool. Um, all right. So, yeah, thanks again for joining me on this uh, episode. Uh, yeah, we we went deep on this one. I, <laughs> I, I love we it. Did. <laughs> and I don't know whether to be sorry for that or not. So. <laughs> no, I think I think it's awesome. Um, you have. Yeah, this may be the first time uh, in a critic podcast that you get a glance into the inner mind of a critic. Uh, yeah. and, and again, I apologize to everyone for it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. So that's going to do it for us here on It Stinks, the Critic Podcast. Join us uh, on next week's episode. Uh, until then, uh, have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Stinks, the Critic Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Rubinow. Our theme song is by Brandon Beck. You can email the podcast at itstinkspod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at itstinkspod. 